Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with David Aikman. He's the co-founder and CEO of ESG DAO, which is an open, democratic, and credibly neutral ESG scoring system that's going to power a new wave of Web3 applications to engage consumers and incentivize companies to create positive change in the world. Over the last 25 years, working for the International Olympic Committee and the World Economic Forum, David has created, curated, and led innovative communities that have changed the world for the better. During his 17 years as Managing Director for the World Economic Forum, he created and ran the Young Global Leaders and Global Shapers Program, which now has over 10,000 young leaders in over 480 local hubs around the world. In this conversation, we talk about if we can hack capitalism to do things differently, democratizing ESG, understanding positive feedback loop to create abundance, which is amplified by Web3 technologies, as well as understanding the role that DAOs can play for society. I hope you enjoyed this smooth conversation thanks to our sound partner, Audio-Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Well, David, I'm so glad we're here in person. It's so nice to be able to do in-person interviews again and that you're here in Singapore. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's been six or seven years since I was in Singapore. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah. It's a pretty special place, isn't it? Yeah. So you've had a pretty impressive career from the International Olympic Committee to MD of the World Economic Forum. So I'd love for you to walk us through a little bit more of your professional journey and how we ended up just before what you're doing now. I'm sorry, you want me to go back? <laughs> no, um, because I, I asked that because, in fact, I think looking back over my career, it seems to make a lot of sense. It probably didn't make a lot of sense when I was living it forward, but looking back, I think it's always been focused on using my capabilities for something bigger, for trying to bring the world together. So when I was in uni, I was part of a leadership development program that was based on servant leadership. So it was really about developing leaders for service, for public service, for volunteer service. So part of it was spending a year in a developing country, working volunteer. So I was a teacher for a year in Guyana in South America. But then when I got onto the career path, I was trying to find something that was doing a little part to make the world better. So at first it was the Olympics. And what I loved was bringing business to support this idea of bringing the world of the youth of the world together in peaceful competition. So for me, I was never really a great sports person, but I liked this ideal of peace through sport, peace through education, peace through getting to know each other. And and, and yeah, so that, that was sort of what, what started my career. And then as I moved on in my career, it was always trying to find ways where I could kind of replicate that feeling. So how could you use the power of business to do something more than just profit. So that's what drew me to the World Economic Forum. It's it's a, a Geneva-based nonprofit foundation. And their whole idea is get to get business, government, and NGOs working together to solve the biggest global challenges because no one country, no one NGO can solve any of the big global problems. You need all the different stakeholders of society working together. And that that was something that was very you know, resonated very deeply with me in terms of my own career path and my own experience of just kind of, yeah, that that there is, there is power in collective action and there is, there is great possibility in very diverse stakeholders, very diverse groups of people coming together and making stuff happen. I had seen that throughout my career. So that's what drew me to, to the World Economic Forum. 
so I started out there very much in the commercial side. So bringing in the commercial partners and the sponsors, similar to what I'd done with the Olympics, but then very quickly got into social entrepreneurship. So leading the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, leading a program for young leaders and really mobilizing communities towards action. And then about seven years ago, got asked to um, go and head up the China office for the World Economic Forum. So I did that and left the organization last summer and wanted to do, actually initially, I kind of had a bit of a, a crisis of faith or a crisis, um, midlife crisis, because in 26 years, I was spending my whole career in bringing people together. Like my fundamental model of change was bringing the world together to solve problems. And the first time we're confronted with an existential threat and a catastrophe called COVID, we all went back into our foxholes. We hoarded vaccines for ourselves. We said, screw the poor. We're going to look after our own populations. And we failed miserably as a species. We failed miserably as an international system. And that sort of made me think, wow, maybe I've got the wrong model of change. <laughs> maybe it's just, maybe it's impossible. And so I, for a little while after I left the forum, I, I focused on really local impact. So I was working with a social entrepreneur in Yunnan in Southern China. I was focused on, you know, really sort of, I would say hyper-local impact because I still wanted to do something meaningful. I still want to leave the world better than I found it, but I just sort of kind of lost faith in the, in the international system. And about six, eight months ago, one of the co-founders of, of our startup reached out to me to get some advice and some help on the thing that they were building. And the moment I got into it, the more I started working with them, the more I started giving my perspectives and, and, and sort of thinking about the way in which they were solving the sustainability and the social challenges. I just thought, this is what I want to devote the next phase of my career to, and maybe it's not relying on the big organizations like the World Economic Forum. Maybe it's about creating a scrappy, feisty, agile startup that can actually get stuff done and can disrupt and can, can sort of make things happen. Having hacked the system, having no know, knowing how the international system works, but maybe now hacking it from the outside or something. So, so that's why I got into this whole Web3 space, because I think this, this technologies offer tremendous, tremendous possibility for fundamentally rethinking our models. And I'm just really excited about what, the, what that can do. And we can talk about that later because I know that's a big theme of your, your, your podcast. But um, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I came from A to B. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And oh, I can just so deeply relate to that crisis of, of life and questioning the world, especially during that time period. I, I went through something very similar. Uh, and so I'm glad that you were able to find that beacon of hope again and start to build and almost use, as you said, like, you know, see so deeply the international systems and, and the big picture systems and be able to sort of navigate through that and sort of disrupt from within. I think that's that's really exciting possibility. And I can just, you know, see your face light up when you talk about it, which it must be nice to have found that hope again after feeling that devastation almost yeah, during that time. I was just saying to somebody, um, actually today, I like the fact that I don't have to ask for permission to do things anymore. I can just try them. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be outside of the, the sort of the formal organizations. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned a little bit, and I just want to, you know, 
go a bit deeper mm. on the sense of community because you've grown and fostered many over the years. You mentioned young global leaders, global shapers, entrepreneur foundation that you looked after as well. So how important, and, and maybe you can just talk a little bit about that idea of community and what that work taught you or what, what you were challenged with or learned along the way of building such incredible global, mm. global communities. Yeah, I mean, each one is so, so different, but I think they all stem from that same belief. I don't know if it's like the Margaret Mead quote or, or something about that. It only takes a small number of individuals to change the world. And I, I do think there is tremendous power in community. And I think we have today in the Web2 world, the kind of illusion of community through our social networks and so on. And some of these tools really do create virtual communities, but they also sort of amplify the negative. They amplify extreme views because in the past, if you know you were very racist or homophobic, you know, living in a village, people would would tell you that's not acceptable and you would sort of fit into the social norms, but now you can join hate groups online and you get people who are just like you who amplify and make you more extreme. That's the negative side. The positive side is, you know, my co-founder and I, one of my co-founders actually met 10 years ago on LinkedIn and never met each other face to face until, until recently. So there is the power for, for positive community. And so I think, the communities that we designed at the World Economic Forum, we're trying to counter that narrative. We're trying to say, let's bring people together who have a common vision or a common set of characteristics in terms of wanting to make the world a better place, wanting to have positive impact. And so some might be through their leadership, some might be because they created social enterprises. So they're really like working to bring solutions at the grassroots level to the poorest of people. Let's unite those people into a physical and virtual community and then plug those communities into the networks of power. So for example, when we created the Global Shapers, it was because we realized that half the world's population was under the age of 27 and there wasn't a single person in Davos at the World Economic Forum annual meeting of that age. So for all the inclusivity that the World Economic Forum had about NGOs, religious leader, artists, you know, NGOs, labor unions, we had everything, but we never thought about it from an intergenerational diversity perspective. And so we set about creating a youth organization that would truly not not empower young people because then they're already empowered i mean we saw that with the arab spring we saw that with so many amazing youth-driven movements but we said how could we take this engine which is revving at such a high speed and actually plug it in through a transmission to the international system and have this young generation speak truth to power represent the future generation because their fate is being discussed in these meetings and around these tables and they don't even have a seat at the table so it was about opening up a seat at the table for young leaders and, and getting them to share their voice. You know, we created that as a completely decentralized community. It was a series of hubs and it, it wasn't hub and spoke. It really was truly networked and no hub, not even the headquarters in Geneva was more influential than the others. And had 
DAOs had decentralized autonomous organizations existed 13 years ago, I would have I would have made it a DAO because I think um, that is the model of governance that in those situations that is that is so exciting and powerful. That technology is amazing. But what we did was we had each of these hubs make impact in their community and we didn't tell them what to focus on. And I remember our board saying to me, oh, tell them they should all focus on water or, and I said, no, like they know what the problems are in their city. It might be, it might be literacy somewhere. It might be, you know, I think the, one of the Indian hubs was about getting people access to feminine hygiene products, you know, and it was like, that is what that community has decided they need. It's not for somebody in Geneva to think that they know better. We don't know better. So it was really about, you know, creating communities, empowering communities or recognizing their power and then plugging that into where it could have the biggest impact. And, and, and we used to always say, you know, if we could just make all of these people just one or two percent better at what they're doing, they're already doing amazing things and changing the world. And if we can just kind of supercharge what they're doing, then then that's then that's, you know, we can we can go home and look at ourselves in the mirror and sleep well at night because we, we did make a difference. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, thanks for sharing yeah. in, in, in such nice detail. And so when you had your sort of crisis of, I guess, work or, or um, during that, that COVID period, was it against what you built in a way or was it just in against the whole system or what where was the anger sort of or a frustration really directed and did you sort of like quit there and then or like what was what happened during it, that time it wasn't it wasn't so much anger just as kind of depression <laughs> in the sense of we built all this and it wasn't enough to make a difference it wasn't enough to avoid the titanic hitting the iceberg i think it was more that feeling of helplessness that feeling of if we can't come together to protect humanity against a virus, something so small, something so deadly, something that we can understand through science, <laughs> but in some places science was thrown out of the window. It was just, it was more that feeling of hopelessness. It was more that feeling of, I've dedicated my life to, to a theory of change, which was insufficient. It didn't measure up. And of course, that's a very simplistic reaction. Of course, all of these big global challenges are much harder and more complex and more difficult to solve. And I guess the, the fact that I, I bounced back so quickly and didn't just go and become a hermit somewhere is probably, is probably a testimony to the fact that the model does work. It just, it actually needs more replication. So I do think there's kind of a critical mass kind of tipping point. And I think there's, unfortunately, there's more forces working for division and destruction. And there are more people or more organizations, economic models, whatever, that are focused on scarcity, that are focused on competition. And unfortunately, those just outweigh the number of people and organizations that are working from a position of abundance and from a position of collaboration and so on. And so... What we need to do as a, as a planet and as a society is to figure out how to, you know, how to shift that mindset and how to shift all of our economic incentives and our thinking towards different models of regeneration and of collaboration and so on. And that's part of the reason why I'm excited about what I'm doing now is because I think it's, it's really trying to 
particularly look at behaviors and incentives and, and, and try and rewire that. And I, I remember years ago, we were running a, um, a meeting. It was a meet the leader with Bill Gates because I was running the community. I was asked to be the moderator. So there I was all nervous, you know, I'm going to moderate a panel. It's a one-on-one -on -one with me and Bill Gates. And so uh, I'm talking to him beforehand. He's like, David, I don't need you to moderate. I know what I'm going to say. It's you just go chill. It's okay. And he goes, I kind of know what you're going to ask me anyway. And those are not the questions I want to answer. And so I was a little miffed at first, but then I sat down and he had this whole thing that he wanted to talk about. He's like, I want to share what I'm reading right now. And he put up a picture of these stacks of books that he had on his nightside table. And all of them on one side were all about scarcity and catastrophe and, you know, how the world is running out of resources and there is no planet B and, and everything. And then the other one was all about abundance and about the possibility of technology to solve the world's problems and, and so on. And he said, here's what I'm reading. Here's what I'm thinking about. And he was saying, you know, we're, we're kind of in a race between the capacity of the planet to sustain life, people's needs and perceived you know, wants and, and technology's ability to, to bridge those two. And I really don't know who's going to win. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I think I need to understand these two philosophies of scarcity and abundance in order to think about how the Gates Foundation could be more effective in order to think about what technologies need to be developed for the future. And I just found that so fascinating and interesting. And, and it really stuck with me that there is kind of a fundamental mind shift. Either you're someone who thinks about here's the pie. How can I take as much for myself or for my tribe or for whatever? And there are those who say, that's the pie. How do we grow it? How do we distribute it more fairly? And it, it just seems to me that there's really two schools of thought and two ways that people are wired and they can be unwired. They can relearn and, and so on. But it sort of it helps to sort of think about as you're developing an organization, as you're thinking about a career, as you're, you know, taking a stance on issues, you're like, well, which position am I going to come from? Am I going to come from one of of fear and scarcity or love and abundance and yeah, I know which camp I'm in. I mean, you can probably you probably guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's it's such a beautiful and important outlook on life that with everything that we do, are you picking love or fear? And it's yeah. actually very simple. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right in the sense that we need to obviously go more towards the love and abundance sign. But do you think, because you talk a lot about, when I was reading up about your work, about mm -hmm. creating a better capitalist system. And do you really think that's possible? Like with everything you know, with everything you've seen in your career, how do you, can we start even beginning to imagine a different kind of capitalism? And what would that actually look like? And how would that benefit the world? And, and what needs to happen? Because I think there's so much on the other scarcity side, really. That's really how the world is driven now. And, and what you're talking about, it's beautiful and it, it's, you know, a utopia in a sense. But is it realistic? Could we get there? Yeah, I mean, I have the blessing of having been born in Canada. And, you know, we have things like free Medicare and we have subsidized tuition. We see the model working in Scandinavia. We see the ability of a leader like Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand to change things and to, you know, put in place new requirements on, on banks, you know, that they should be more sustainable and, and loaning, you know, more on ESG basis. So there are things that give me hope and I don't think there's anything 
inherently evil about about capitalism. I think there's just like there's not anything inherently evil about religion, and yet more bad things have been done in the name of religion than than other things. Um, because humans, we we sort of we can pervert the system and we can twist things to our to our selfish ends. And so I think I'm a big believer in the power of markets and capitalism with the right incentives to do the right thing. But that's that's the crux. The crux is, are you incentivized to evade taxes and set up funky offshore structures to, you know, to not support the hospitals and highways and, and whatever? Or are you incentivized both through laws and through social norms to, you know, to contribute and, uh, you know, to look after the citizens and society through your taxes. So, it, you know, as, just as an example, or is it, you know, about maximizing shareholder returns or trying to create profits that are that are sustainable and that are net positive to the planet? I mean, I think there are always choices along the way. And unfortunately, that fear and greed and scarcity mindset has driven a lot of the structures of our economies and our markets. And so it's incentivizing a certain type of behavior. So what do you think we need to see or how do you think we can incentivize other types of behavior? Does it need to be the law coming in and, and regulation from governments or is it the consumer really pushing? Obviously, it's probably part of all three. But how do you really think we can start to see incentives shift on the scale that we need to see it in the timeline that we need to see it? I would love it if there's a, a simple answer, but I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. So yes, you need the laws, you need regulation, you need compliance, you need pollution, for example, to be, to be punishable. You need enforcement mechanisms. You know, when I, I first moved to China in 2015, pollution was still pretty bad, but two years later, the skies of Beijing were, were blue most of the year around. And I talked to people in the Beijing government and people in the Chinese government about what was behind that successful policy. And they said, actually, it wasn't environmental cleanup, it was corruption cleanup. Because it turns out it was cheaper to bribe the local environmental bureau officer to not, you know, to give you a passing grade on your inspection than it was to install the carbon scrubbers on your factory. And so the moment they busted the first environmental officers for corruption as part of the corruption campaign, all the others fell in line and the laws were there, just weren't being enforced. So you need the laws, you need the enforcement, but you also need the, the market incentives, you know? So in that case, the market was saying the price of bribing an official is cheaper than the price of a carbon filter. So you need the market dynamics and the market incentives. You've got tremendous amount of money, again, just sticking on the Chinese example, tremendous amount of money flowing into green bonds and, and different projects. You know, one of the companies did a, an electric vehicle green bond and was you know, seven times oversubscribed. So the market is ready to reward that, but there's not always the right supply and demand. But then I think you also need the social norms and the consumers and the board members and, and the sort of the, the ordinary human beings actually saying, we don't support that. We want something different. We expect something better. We expect our leaders to be more ambitious. We expect our societies to be more just. And if you don't have that, all the regulation and all the market forces in the world aren't going to do anything because that, that pressure won't be there. 
And our project, our, our startup is, is trying to address those dynamics by recognizing the power of consumers to make things happen and then sort of giving them the vehicle to do that. But I, I think you need all those, those, different, those different forces. And if you ask me to prioritize them and say which ones are the most powerful, I think I actually would struggle because I think they all have a role to play. So let's uh, zoom in a little bit and talk about your startup. But before we do that, I'd love for you to define what is a DAO and just sort of explain that in your own words so that we all are on board and they're clear with what you're talking about. And also ReFi as well. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it's a form of collective ownership and collective governance that similar to say crowdfunding or to a community association gives fractional ownership and governance rights to every every member of the community but unlike the analog structures that we have today it codifies all of the governing rules into the code of the smart contract so when decisions are made or when certain actions are taken by the DAO, by the community, it's executed automatically. So there's a big design challenge in terms of how do you build the right kind of democratic governance system into this code. But once you do that, you have this kind of liquid democracy or governance that can just run 24 seven without somebody to tally the votes, without somebody to, you know, audit and, and, and watch what's going on. And so you, you sort of, you truly empower the community to just get on with what it wants to do, whether that's deciding who should be the benefit of a grant or what should be the new protocols that should be adopted or, or whatever it might be, whatever the parameters of governance that you've set up might be, you essentially turn over the trust to the community and in a very permissionless way, you let them get on with it. And then you kind of sit back and, and kind of try and steer that crazy herd <laughs> in the right direction. But it's, it's a tremendous act of faith. And I'm really excited about running an organization that is progressively more and more decentralized, because I think it's the ultimate expression of love leadership. It's the ultimate expression of I trust you and respect you, even though I've not met you, but I see by the fact that you're engaging in this community that you care about these issues. And I'm going to trust you to decide the future of this, these issues. So just from a sort of community governance perspective, I'm really excited to watch that play out. And then regenerative finance or refi is an area that's that's coming up in web3 we've had defi decentralized finance we've got gamefi which is all the 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 financial incentives around uh, gaming and so on and refi is really looking at finance as a tool for regenerating ecosystems and regenerating societies and making them more economically just and inclusive that's really exciting to me. That's where what we were talking about before, that's hacking capitalism to do things differently. And that's providing incentives for different kinds of outcomes. I remember this, this wonderful cartoon, you know, in the newspaper and it was sort of this post-apocalyptic world and people sitting around the campfire and 
an older guy saying to the younger generation. He said, sure, we destroyed the planet, but for a few glorious decades, we really maximized shareholder return. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, wow. I mean, if you ever wonder about the importance of the environment versus the economy, just try to count your money while you're holding your breath, right? I mean, this is like, so why isn't that recognized in our systems? Why isn't that, you know, why, why aren't our economies incentivized to be that way? And that's what regenerative finance is looking at. And so it might be things like conserving a forest, but instead of just, you know, sort of buying up a plot of land, it's about designing an economic system where the local people can be paid for being stewards of that natural resource. I was talking to a wonderful company uh, this week who has a project to keep gold in the ground. And they're like, why do we dig up gold, process it, lock it in a bank somewhere and pay for security to keep it in Fort Knox? We do all this environmental damage taking it out of the ground. Why couldn't we in certain countries recognize the reserves, prove the reserves are there, and then pay to keep it in the ground? and hold it there as an asset for the future generations. And for some particularly developing countries with these reserves, they could do so much with unleashing that economic asset and they could avoid some of the worst environmental degradation by, again, coming up with a completely different model. It's still an economic model. It's still designed to generate profits, but it's coming at it from a completely different perspective and saying, if we think about a different outcome, if we think about an outcome which is not extractive and destructive, how could we use these tools? How could we design something in a different direction? And I love it that there are so many smart people and idealistic people now trying to solve these problems from a different perspective. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's the hope, my hope was reinstilled in humanity with some of the people that I actually met at Davos. I mm. attended the World Economic Forum for the first time this year, and I was very jaded after COP last year. Yeah. And going there, meeting all these incredible humans, so many of them working in the Web3 space, so many of them using this technology to start to solve some of the biggest issues we have in the world, I could breathe again, and I was like, okay, there's all these smart people dedicating their time, their intelligence, and their passion to actually solving a lot of, a lot of this. And so that's why... I really am sort of wanting to understand so much more about how this technology is being used, speak to people like you to help to share your message as well, because the more people that understand the all the different layers that this technology can provide and so many hoops that it helps to jump through, I think it's a, a very exciting time. So I'd love to have you explain a little bit more about what ESG DAO does and why you think that DAOs can really help to shape and solve some of the problems through that ESG lens. Right. Maybe just a little word about Davos. I mean, I remember when I first started working for the World Economic Forum, my, my mother called me up. She's a pastor and I'm retired, but um, in Canada. And she said, David, I, I'm glad that you got a job after your MBA, but I'm I'm a little bit worried that you're working for the World Trade Organization because I don't think they do very good stuff. I said, don't worry, mom. I'm not working for the WTO. It's WEF. It's a different, different organization. But I always had this sort of, you know, you hear these conspiracy theories. You hear these, you have these, you go in with these ideas. And I have to say, you know, I was there for 17 years. I wouldn't have stayed there had I not 
believed in what the organization was doing and the impact, the positive impact it was having. And I didn't, I wouldn't have stayed and I not believed that I could contribute to that, you know, because life's too short to, to waste. And I can honestly say that most of the leaders I met there were enlightened. They were people who do care. They were people. And of course I was fortunate to work with a lot of the young leaders and the social entrepreneurs and the tech startups and so on. So maybe they, they, they have a little bit of a different view, but I, I do believe that there was a genuine willingness a, to learn and, and to question themselves and B, to, to work with others to try and, and solve um, big problems. And that is inspiring. That is inspiring. It's not what we think of when we look at the World Economic Forum or the Davos meeting from, from outside. So my startup is called ESG Dow, and my 17-year-old son says, thank goodness you have grown up in an environment and you've had your career in, in IOC and WEF and other organizations that like acronyms. He says, because if you said you work for environmental, social governance, decentralized autonomous organization, no one would ever listen to you again. <laughs> so, yes, it's a, it's a long-winded name. The idea is simple and ambitious. At the same time, it's trying to simplify, verify, and gamify environmental and, and social impact, both for brands and consumers. And what, what, what does that really mean? That means that we're trying to move the goalposts, right? So, so ESG and ESG ratings, this is a whole $42 trillion asset class that has grown up over the last, you know, sort of 10, 12 years, started out with the United Nations principles for responsible investment. And so it was actually one of our young global leaders, James Gifford, who sort of sat down with the institutional investment community and thought, how could we use investment dollars to incentivize better corporate behavior? How could we have companies thinking about more sustainable business models, better corporate governance, and so on? So it starts from a really, really good place. And so what it's evolved into, I think, unfortunately, is, is sort of huge sort of compliance and consulting industry, which has really become very, very focused on using environmental, social and governance metrics to assess the risk of exogenous things on a company. So it looks at what are extreme weather events going to do to the profitability of this company? Well, that's great for investors, but it sucks for the rest of us. We wanna know is that company contributing to those extreme weather events? Is the company paying their people a living wage or are they keeping people in poverty? Are companies fighting corruption or are they just letting it happen in their own backyard? And so we think there's a way to change the rating system. And we debated long and hard whether we should even call it ESG, but we thought, look, it's already a big thing that's becoming mainstream. Let's try and change it. So we're gonna call it open ESG. We're going to make it transparent. We're going to make it open to the world. We're going to put the data on the blockchain so that companies can't manipulate it. If a company says, I'm going to be carbon neutral by 2030, in the future, they won't be able to just sort of quietly delete that press release two years later when they haven't made any progress towards the target, which is unfortunately what happens in greenwashing and happens with all this PR campaigns. And, you know, they companies do feel the pressure from society. They do feel the pressure from consumers. But sometimes they don't go far enough or they cop out when it gets too hard or when the 
the politicians criticize them or, or the markets bash them for their, their lack of performance. So by making it transparent, by holding companies accountable, we think we can change that behavior from a governance perspective. But that's a little bit the kind of stick. <laughs> Where's the carrot? So the carrot is on the other side where we're creating basically a loyalty program, but instead of creating loyalty towards brands, it's loyalty for the planet. It's planet loyalty. And so you can engage with brands. You can learn about their sustainability products, their, their sustainability initiatives. You could buy more sustainable products and you can be rewarded in tokens. We gamify that. We use the Web3 tokenomics to to basically transfer the advertising dollars from a brand into your wallet for watching and engaging and challenging that brand and, and questioning them. But real, real brand engagement, which is something that brands are really looking for and they don't always have the way to do. And so the other thing that's exciting about that from, from my perspective is we know that you know, Gen Z and, and Gen Alpha and, and millennials care about this stuff. We know they're conscious consumers, but that risks still being a very small slice of the overall population. And maybe that's just the rich, educated graduates who can have that opinion. We're in for a really tough couple of years. The next couple of years are going to be a global recession. There are going to be a lot of people hurting. And we're hoping that this economic system that we're creating could be a way to get, you know, a single mom in Mongolia who doesn't really care about sustainability, trying to figure out how do I get the next meal on the table for my kids. But someone tells her about this loyalty program where she can go and she can learn some stuff. She can watch some ads or whatever and be paid for attention, which she's probably watching ads anyways on her on her social media. But now she could earn tokens that help with the next grocery bill. And that to me is a way where you could really grow the pie. You could really get more people in the world caring about sustainability, caring about social justice and, and engaging with brands and incentivizing brands to do better and to raise their ambition level. And that's again, one of these situations where coming at it from a position of abundance, coming at a position of, of growth, you can, you can use these new technologies to try to say, how do we, how do we maximize this? Yeah, wow, so much to un unpack there. So if I zoom out and try to understand all the different elements, and I think for especially maybe some of the listeners that aren't very familiar with the DAO structure or yeah. tokenomics and, and all these buzzwords um, sure. that, you know, have been used. So That's there is... That's what happens when you spend the last week at a token um, token 2049 conference <laughs> or Asia Crypto Week. I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid, so I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> let's unpack that. No, it's good. It's good. So... If I understand correctly, you're going to have the DAO and you're going to be part of what I read online as well when I was doing my research is you'll also, they'll be independently verifying what companies are saying. So there's a part where you're incentivizing the community to with bounties, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me unpack the whole thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I said to somebody, I said, it's complex, but it's not complicated. So we're trying really, really not to make complexity a feature. I think often in the past, a lot of the first wave of development of Web3 has been all about these algorithms and this complexity, and there's been like a cult around it. It's like, if you if you don't understand it, it must be a good project, you know, for, for ordinary people. And I think that's led to, a, you know, some real weird stuff happening in the, in the Web3 ecosystem. And I think that's why there's a lot of 
skepticism and anxiety on part of ordinary consumers. And even we, we do a lot of work with NGOs and they, they don't want to touch crypto. You know, many NGOs are just like, this is a Ponzi scheme and it's bad for the environment. So there's a big education part that we have to do on our side to, to, to help them get on board. But I think part of it's justified because there really was this sort of cult of complexity and, and, and we're all smarter than you. And, and if you, yeah, anyway, so the idea is today's like metrics for company, the scoring is not in real time. It's at best every year. And oftentimes it's every couple of years. And when you see every year people's scores going up and down in the rating system, the ESG rating system, oftentimes they haven't actually materially changed what they're doing. Either the algorithm has been changed or maybe the company implemented a new policy so they get to tick another box, which strengthens their score. And we don't think that's really making a difference in the, to the planet. So what we want to do is simplify the score and have it as much as possible be in real time, but also have it evolve. Because lo and behold, when the war broke out in Ukraine, some people opened their ESG portfolios and realized that there was Gazprom in there. Because they were a good performer, they bought carbon credits, they'd done whatever, but people had a sort of moral crisis. They're like, I don't want to support people who are you know, ostensibly behind the war. So that made us think, how could we have a score which is kind of updating and evolving as issues evolve? So I'm a big believer in the power of diversity to yield better results. I've seen this in every single team that I've managed. I've seen this in every single community that I've managed. The more diversity you have in terms of gender, generation, geography, just like the more diversity, the better. It can often be harder and noisier and more uncomfortable to get to high performing, but the high performing is always so much higher than homogenous teams. It's just 26 years of my career have shown me that in every single instance. So we want to build that into our system and a DAO gives you the perfect way to do that. The problem is if we let everybody vote on the score, if you can use your voice and your tokens to say, I think the only issue that matters is environment and a company like ExxonMobil could come in and buy up all the tokens and say fossil fuels are great, you're going to have a mess. So we want this open system where everybody can participate and share their views and share their voices. But the actual score itself has another DAO, a council of experts, of scientists, of NGO leaders, of business leaders who, who guard and are the trustees of that score. So every input that they get from the broader community, they have to deal with. If somebody says, all boards in the open ESG score should have 50% women. That's our proposal. They have to deal with that proposal. They have to accept it. They have to reject it. They have to modify it. And this is kind of the way it works in Switzerland with direct democracy. So I, I, I think the model can work. I've seen it as a Swiss citizen now. But you need to keep the integrity. You know, the trust in that score has to be everything. But we fully believe that if the companies are displaying the, the open ESG score on their websites in real time and... Someone comes forward with a proposal to say, for example, you need to think about your business's impact on indigenous populations. All of a sudden, everybody's score across the board will change. And a board will look at that in their board meeting and they'll say, why did our score go down? Why did our open ESG score go down by 5%? What happened? And they'll say, oh, well, there was a new criteria about what's our impact on indigenous populations. 
And someone said, well, we haven't thought about that, actually. Let's go back to our spot. Let's take a look at that. And then they can, they can improve their score. So you create that positive feedback loop. We then realized as we were talking to ESG leaders and companies and, and, and data providers in this space, that a lot of the stuff that's going into today's scores is voluntarily disclosed data that hasn't been audited. It hasn't been verified. And some of the stuff is actually imputed. It's actually made up. There's like the ratings agency says, well, we heard from one or two companies that, so maybe, okay, we're going to assume that the whole industry is like this. I mean, it's nuts. There's no way any academic institution or, you know, even company would, would sort of allow that to be done to them. So anyway, so we are then creating a little separate entity within um, the ecosystem, which will which will validate that data. And companies will quickly learn that if their, if their data is validated and verified, their score goes up. Because if you're a, a business and you share how much water you're consuming, some might argue it's a trade secret, but most people would say, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should say, this is what we're using up and we'll try and do better next year, or we'll try and do better next month. But the fact that you won't even let somebody come in and measure it means maybe it's worse than you're reporting. So anyway, so we think that either NGOs or governments or, or others will, will put up bounties to validate the data. And we hope that actually companies will start putting up those bounties. They'll say, yeah, I could hire you know, Accenture or somebody or PwC to come in and probably cost me about $3 million, but I'm going to put up a bounty for university students. You know, I'm going to put up 100,000 and whichever university can validate this data will pay the bounty. So again, we're, we're trying to create all these hacks and all these, these incentives in the system to try and encourage better, better corporate behavior and, and more transparency and accountability in the system. So I hope that sort of explained the, the different components, but um, I know it's complex, but we're trying to keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, I think I have a, a much deeper understanding of all the different parts and how it potentially works together. I think it is such a big issue that you're tackling. And there's so many moving parts and so many things that need to align on that. But I think that's the beauty of this technology is that it will grow and it will allow so much of what you're talking about to actually be facilitated on a, on a mass scale, which is very exciting. And so I guess you also talked a little bit about people like, and you talked about a woman, you gave an example of a woman, instead of watching TV ads on TV, she can watch ads on this system. So there's also the ability to actually engage in and watch from brands. So what is the financial business model here? Like sure. How is this? So the idea is we, we kind of joke that in a nice way that it's kind of recycling ad revenue for good. So companies are advertising on platforms, they're hiring PR agencies to share their sustainability reports or whatnot. But when they do that, all of that money is then going to Facebook shareholders or 60 something percent is going to Google. And we thought, well, why not give it back to the people that you're trying to reach? Why not actually take the, the bulk of that and give it back to consumers in the form of loyalty tokens? So what it does is it recognizes the sovereignty of the individual about their data and about their attention and says, you're not the product that we're exploiting. You're the person that we value and respect. 
We want you to know about our brand. We want to share what we're doing and we're willing to pay you for your time and your feedback because we don't, you know, you've got to guard against bots and whatever. There's going to have to be, you watch a campaign by Nike and then you fill out a little questionnaire to say, this is what I think you guys should be focused on as a company or, you know, whatever. And you could even use it to incentivize real world action, right? You could say, Nike, just continuing with that brand, is organizing together with the American Heart Association a, a fun run on Saturday. Show up and we'll give you tokens for, for getting out and moving. So you create a different relationship with your consumers. And from a brand perspective, that is incentivizing loyalty. You're, you're really reaching people directly with your message. You're getting feedback from them directly so you can decide whether or not your campaigns are effective. You're not just counting on some algorithms, metrics to tell you you know, that, that this target demographic was reached however many times you're actually getting real, real feedback from real people. But I think, again, sort of continuing with, with Nike as a brand, one of the most interesting things would be that they put a campaign on the platform about the, the mushroom leather that they've got in their shoes now and, and get feedback on that. And then somebody earns the tokens and then goes and uses it to buy a pair of Tom's shoes. And Tom's Shoes is a brand that gives a pair of shoes to a poor person every time you buy a pair of shoes. I think that'd be wonderful. I think Nike probably wouldn't like it very much, but they would also get the feedback that while somebody may have been interested in their model and in their sustainability campaign, when it came to actually making a purchasing decision, they did something else because they believed in the business model and the values of that other brand. That is tremendously valuable feedback for a big consumer brand like Nike. And again, it changes the power equation. It's saying the powerful person in this equation is not the brand. It's the, it's the person who's actually making the brand profitable. It's the person who's, it's, you know, it's not all these companies, they don't exist because magic just, you know, invents money. It's because people make a decision to say, I'm going to spend my hard earned dollars with you. So, so yeah, we're sort of trying to change that dynamic. What we're also doing is building into the economic model a donation on any, every ad campaign that would go to causes that people and brands care about. So when you go onto our platform, you'll say, I care about human rights, climate, and I don't know, good corporate governance. You'll choose the things that you care about. The companies that score highly on those with their open ESG score will be recommended to you. Their campaigns will be the first ones you see in your feed. And if there's a match, then There'll be on climate change, maybe it'll be a donation off that campaign to WWF and Worldwide Fund for Nature because the company supports that charity and because you it aligns with your values. So there's a, sort of like a matching contribution, which, again, is a way of incentivizing brands to advertise with us compared to Facebook or somebody else, because we're saying you can report this stuff in your corporate social responsibility report. You can show, you know, you can align it with your corporate philanthropic activities. We'll just make it easier we're also doing it because we want to get those NGOs to understand the power of Web3. So they'll need to have a wallet to have those tokens and we'll help them. We'll sort of mentor them on to Web3 so that they can start to use these tools for their own campaigns, for their own fundraising. Because, I, again, I think with every technological revolution, the early adopters, you know, they start to benefit and, and the, the laggards get left behind. And I don't I don't want just because of you know, some anxiety about the state of crypto that all these organizations lose out on, on really the benefits that could come from using these technologies. And then, of course, we'll take a small, you know, minimally extractive 
you know, fee for running the campaign and for supporting the platform. But even there, what we want to do is we want to reinvest those fees into the DAO so that the people who are supporting the project also are incentivized to hang with the project and to support it. So again, we're trying to create this really positive feedback loop of, of abundance and, and support. Yeah, sounds incredible. And so what is the t- trajectory right now, your roadmap? Um, where are you at right now? Where is it going to go in the next yeah, couple of years? Uh, a couple months, hopefully. Couple um, months. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're in a race against time because I think the time to, to, to act and to build is now. Uh, like I was talking, we're in for, for a couple of painful years from a macroeconomic perspective. And we think getting this tool out and creating creating value for people who are who are suffering is quite quite important. So we have the basic framework done. We're hoping to launch the score in its first iteration, you know, sort of borrowing from software. The first thing we release is not going to be perfect, but it's going to be out there and living and growing and breathing in January, probably in Davos, to have that expert council share the first version one. And hopefully a couple months after that, we'll be able to launch the, the loyalty platform. So, you know, second quarter next year. And right now we're working with brands to try and get them onto the platform to start thinking about their campaigns, how they're going to do that, making sure that the platform we are building is fit for purpose and works for them. We've got great people supporting us on on the consumer side, um, you know, to really come from the user perspective and the Gen Z perspective to say, how does this thing have to work? How does it, how we make this thing really clear and, and simple and easy to to interact with? So. We're sort of six to eight months away from, from the first clunky versions being ready, but we are, our, our CTO is a wonderful guy who's been sort of 40 years in the, in the business and already decided over one weekend to sort of build the database because, you know, we sort of build open source and we have this open and transparent mentality into everything we do. And the kind of, of databases that run Google and, and Facebook are called knowledge graph databases. So they, they put together data in novel ways and they really allow you to see what's going on. And we said, well, could you build one of those that's open? <laughs> could you build one of those that's like transparent to the world? And so he went out and found there are only like two companies in the Web3 world that are, that are doing this. Like most people haven't been thinking about this problem, but he went out and, and found one and taught himself how to do it. And... We have a proof of concept. You can we actually have a browser extension today that as you're surfing the web, you can see the ESG score of a company and you can click down and get the detail as you're just interacting with their website. So the proof of concept's there, like the, the idea of a real-time score that's 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 really showing you what's going on. Now we just need to replace the data, you know, with with the data that's coming from the open ESG score, and we need to, you know, replace the score. But we got the proof of concept. So we're moving fast and hopefully we'll be we'll be out live soon. Yes, very exciting. And so I'm just curious, this idea or concept of DAOs, do you think that we're going to get to a point where they will re- replace centralized organization structures of today? Or do you think it's going to be a hybrid moving forward? What do you see looking to the Yeah, I think right now we're seeing tremendous amount of innovation and experimentation. And so I think there are going to be sort of emergent best practices they're they're gonna they're gonna be successful models that that emerge i think it's it's probably a little early because everyone's just still experimenting but i think the idea and the technology are here to stay i think it's still really geeky and esoteric 
So I'm sure half of your listeners will have fallen asleep by now. But um, I not. Uh, no, but like there was a recent exam. I mean, at one of the conferences this week, people were all excited about Starbucks having launched an NFT, you know, non-fungible token sort of Web3 loyalty program. And because I am curious about this stuff, you know, I was sort of interested to learn. And I think they really missed a trick because they, they sort of got this sort of the superficial stuff of of Web3. But can you imagine if they had said every loyalty customer, we're going to give you a fractional share of the company. And with every coffee you buy that goes on to this digital thing, you're going to get maybe it's only a millionth of a share. But basically every purchase is going to make you more of an owner of Starbucks. That would completely change people's purchasing behavior. They didn't do it because they're coming from a mentality of scarcity. They're coming from a mentality where this is just another membership scheme to squeeze more, extract more value out of you as a consumer. So I think it's going to take a while for particularly organizations like that to then think, ooh, could we create a DAO that all of these loyalty members are not only you know, fractional owners of a small part of the company, but they provide direct feedback to our product development team or our, or our board. That's, that's the power of DAO. It's like crowdfunding. It's like, it's like um, Reddit meets crowdfunding meets, you know, Craigslist, meet whatever, all these web two things that have been so interesting and useful to designers, developers, entrepreneurs. Big companies are just missing a trick. They don't seem to recognize that people who care about their brands actually want to contribute. Most people don't want to be passive. Most people don't want to be victims or exploited. They want to be, they don't want to be objects. They want to be the subjects. They want to be the, the, the one who has the action in the story. They want to be the hero of their own story. And so why don't the brands recognize that? And I think the successful DAOs are the ones that do that. The successful DAOs are the ones that say, hey, we want to allocate capital to amazing NGOs. We think you can do that better as a collective community than us as a bunch of managers sitting in the NGO headquarters. Those DAOs are vibrant. Those communities are thriving right now and growing and multiplying. That's one use case. I think there's, there's other use cases that are still being experimented with. Everything from product design to board and company governance. But I, but I think so. I think you'll sort of have these archetypes that go up. I would say those are the ones that I, I see the most right now. It's product development or feature development within a, within a project. It's allocation of funds and funding. And so maybe everything from grants on Gitcoin to, you know, there's one that started called Earth Fund, which is, you know, about what charities get funded. And there's others that are more sort of community governance and, and, and sort of expertise. And, and you can see like the people who contribute the most in the discussions and so on, their reputation score goes up and they have more influence within the community. And so there's a sort of thriving kind of, yeah, sort of social media, but with, um, with reputation metrics attached. It's fascinating um, from a governance and a community management perspective. And I think there's, there's many more models that will emerge, but we're sort of at the baby, baby steps, baby stage. You know, it's really, really new, new stuff. Yeah. It's again, it's just so many layers and, and fascinating ways for this to grow. And 
yeah, for people to really contribute and feel like they're part of something. And I think that's it kind of circles back really nicely to Omar's how you fell into this after having your COVID awakening in a sense. And so I guess for those listening that maybe want to get involved, they want to support, they want to join the DAO, or they want to, maybe you want to just point them in a direction of how they can start to take steps to be part of a more impactful or more environmentally conscious way to get involved in Web3, like what would you suggest? Yeah, so there's a lot of sort of channels out there on on the social media around refi, regenerative finance. There's a whole thing called the solar punk movement, which I really love, which is, you know, you sort of got the cyberpunk movement, which is this dystopian broken future where it's raining all the time, the planet's been destroyed and everybody's in a sort of survival of the fittest. The solar punk movement is really about ecological regeneration and restoration and economic models that are regenerative and and how our cities turn back into green spaces and and the world heals itself. It's a very different Star Trek-y sort of utopian vision of the future. So I think checking out ReFi, checking out SolarPunk, um, there's there's tremendous uh, um, resources available just by doing a, a simple search. Of course, um, ESGDAO.Earth, they can come there and, and sign up and follow us or join any of our channels. And we're really trying to be an enabler within the refi space. So we're, we're partnering with lots of different Web3 projects in this space because we don't, we don't think we can do everything ourselves. We want to really rely on partners and we really want to create a, a thriving ecosystem. And my hope is that the open ESG score is just the start of something where then any project that wants to build something on the back of corporate reputation can use our data feed and and build whole sort of you know decentralized apps and products and and engagement tools and analytics on top of our stuff so again we're coming at it from a very very open and collaborative space and we'd love to you know anybody listening who who wants to get involved we we'd love to hear from you love to work with you so thank you Great. Thank you. And a final question. How do you think that we can live wide awake? So people have sometimes accused me of being, you know, sort of idealistic and, and optimistic. And um, I remember in a high school philosophy class, my philosophy teacher saying, you know, the easiest position in the world, the easiest, like philosophical, laziest philosophical position is to be a cynic. Because of course you can find fault with everything. Of course you can look at everything and see, and it's so easy to point out the weaknesses and the, and the, um, the deficits in a way of thinking or in a way of, of behaving. And equally to be a naive idealistic who just, you know, everything's wonderful and perfect and so on. It's also very intellectually lazy and easy from a philosophical point of view. The hardest, the hardest position to take is to be a realist who has hope for the future. And I think I was 17 or 16 when I heard that, and it sort of made a big impression. And so I've always been that sort of optimistic. I do believe in the power of people to make a difference. I do believe, I do have hope for the future, but I'm not naive enough to think that it's just gonna all magically happen. But of course I'm, I'm you know, I mentioned Star Trek, you know, or whatever, you know, this, this vision of the future where, because we know it, just, you, you know, just look at the numbers. We have enough food to feed our planet. We have enough wealth for everybody to prosper. We just haven't structured it the right way. And so we can solve this. We really can, but we just need to think differently. And it means, to your point, we need to live wide awake. We need to see 
the consequences of our purchasing decisions. We need to see the impact of us not caring enough to, to help someone else. We, we need to see that. We need to live with our eyes open. And we need to challenge our politicians to do better. We need to challenge brands to raise their ambition level in terms of the positive impact. We need to think about our own positive impact and what we can do. And so it'd be my hope that you could get everybody thinking about this, this sort of question on a daily basis. How do I want to make a positive impact today? How do I want to, I care about different things, but what's, what's the one thing I could do today to make a difference? And that there would be this whole ecosystem in the regenerative finance space, in the Web3 space, in the even the Web2 space, where they could get behind that and say, great, let's give the people a channel to do that. Let's, let's give people the vehicle to make those decisions. And I think, you know, I've seen, you know, just even my son, you know, in a restaurant saying, is that a plastic straw or is that plant-based plastic? And they're like, no, it's made of tapioca. And he's like, okay, I'll take the straw. Otherwise I don't want, it. you know, so there are, I mean, it's, it's a stupid example maybe, but it's, it's a little thing where we have the power to, to make those changes and to force uh, positive changes, but it requires you to be awake with your eyes open and challenging and, and asking questions and, and making choices based on your values. And your Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for joining Pleasure. and for answering all the questions in such detail. I really appreciate it and very excited to support ESG DAO and see where it gets to. Thank you. Thank you. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with David. Firstly, we can hack capitalism to do things differently by changing and shifting economic incentives. Secondly, finance can be a tool to regenerate ecosystems instead of destroying them. And finally, let's shift our mindsets and move from fear and scarcity to love and abundance. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake. Mm-hmm.